and like go to the cinema or go bowling. Uh, but me and a couple of intrepid campers set off on our boat uh, to do some fishing. And do you know what? It was great fun. Uh, fish were jumping onto the line. Now, they weren't very big or impressive. They were just little tiddly mackerel. Uh, but there were loads of them, loads and loads of fish. And we came up with a bright idea. Uh, that evening at camp, there was going to be a barbecue. Uh, so why not take some of our catch back and uh, have some freshly gr grilled mackerel for tea? Uh, that's what we did. And it all seemed like such a good idea until we got back to camp and spoke to the cook, and reality hit. Um, not being a very experienced fisherman, um, I didn't really realize that you couldn't just throw a, you know, a fish on the barbecue. You have to prepare it first. Um, preparing is a fair, fairly mild term for what that involves. Um, in other words, me and a couple of mates had to spend the next hour or so slicing the mackerel open and depositing their guts into a bucket before they could be cooked. Um, now, it was actually quite fun in some ways. Um, <laughs> but it's not an experience that I'm particularly keen to repeat. Uh, the sight of that bucket filled with the insides of a load of fish. <coughs> Worse. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was horrible. <coughs> and the smell, well... Let's not talk about the smell, just in case I cough something else up. <laughs> uh, the sight of that bucket was foul. The smell was even worse. And if that story has started to kind of turn your stomach a little bit, if you can almost smell the, the putrid stench of fish guts, then, well, I apologize a little bit, but I hope it sets the scene for Jonah chapter 2. Uh, we said that the book of Jonah is full of the unexpected. This chapter is certainly an unusual chapter of God's word. Last week, we finished with the surprise of a, a great fish gobbling Jonah up as he drowned in the sea. This week, the whole chapter, until the last verse, is set inside the belly of that fish. If, if fish guts smell bad when they're on the outside, being inside them must have been horrible. Dark, wet, stinking. We can really only imagine uh, what it would have been like for Jonah to have been stuck inside the, the insides of this fish, uh, not just for a couple of hours, but for three days and three nights. Ugh. But as the camera goes you know, down the throat of the fish into its belly and the video feed springs into life, what do we see this rebellious prophet of God doing? He's singing his heart out. Uh, not singing in the shower, singing in the stomach. And chapter 2 is a psalm, a song sung by Jonah, all in response to God's rescue. Uh, did you see that coming? Uh, this chapter gives us a case study. It shows us a, a worked example of someone who has experienced God's grace, his rescue from dramatic circumstances. It shows us how they respond, and it asks us, how will we respond to God's salvation. So let's look and see. Firstly, deep gratitude. Jonah's song is a psalm of thanksgiving to God. As we see from the first line, he belts out from within the fish's belly. Verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Well, we weren't told this in chapter 1, but it seems that as Jonah was sinking beneath the waves, he prayed he called out to God to save him. Now, that seems very normal to us. It seems like the right thing to do, doesn't it? Most people in a life or death 
situation like this will pray. Even people who claim not to believe in God will often turn to him uh, when things get desperate. Uh, But this is a big step in the right direction for Jonah. Uh, Do you remember in chapter 1, calling out was the thing that this stubborn prophet absolutely refused to do. God told him to, to call out against Nineveh, and he fled as far as he could in the opposite direction. Uh, In the midst of that violent storm, the ship's captain pleaded with him to call out to his God, and Jonah kept his mouth firmly shut. While his head was above water, Jonah refused to call out for God or to God. But as he began to sink further and further and further down, his resistance was broken, and he opened his mouth, calling out to the Lord. And wonderfully, God answered him. We said last time again that it can be easy to miss God's kindness in these stories. And it's so easy for us to read a verse like the the first half of verse 2 and just brush past it. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Well, yeah, of course he did. That's what God does, isn't it? What else have you got to say to us, Jonah? But this is really extraordinary. Jonah has deliberately disobeyed and dishonored God, stubbornly refused to obey him, to treat God as he deserves to be treated until he realizes how much he needs him. How would you respond if you were in God's position here? If you're anything like this, anything like me, it might be something like this. Look who's come crawling back. Oh, you need me now, do you? You should have thought about that before you betrayed me. Fortunately for all of us, God isn't like me. There's no grudge or bitterness towards Jonah from God, just grace. What does this disobedient prophet have to do to persuade the God he's running from to rescue him? He doesn't have to do anything at all. All he needs to do is ask. And the God who created the dry land and the sea uses his supreme power to rescue him. Because he's the God of grace. The God who shows kindness to those who don't deserve it and could never earn it. And from this moment, he turns Jonah's life around. We saw last week, that last time, that running away from God had sent Jonah into a downward spiral. He went down to the port of Joppa, and then he went down into the ship. And as Jonah gives us a a first-person view, if you like, of what happened to him after he was hurled over the side of the boat, We see him on that same downward trajectory. Verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah's rebellion had sent him down and down until he couldn't fall any further. And of course, the the physical reality of drowning must have been a a terrible and terrifying experience. Uh, But if we had the the mindset and the the imagination of the original readers of Jonah's account, uh, I think we'd hear a a double meaning in Jonah's watery poem here. Uh, Where was Jonah when he finally opened his mouth to call upon the Lord. That's an easy one, isn't it? He was in the sea. 
yes, but according to Jonah, he was somewhere else as well. Second half of verse 2. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, Sheol is a, a tricky phrase. We're not sure exactly uh, what it means, which is why it isn't always translated into English. It's left in the Hebrew like it is here. But broadly speaking, Sheol was the, the place of the dead. For God's Old Testament people, Sheol was often imagined as a, a place of dark and murky waters, a grim, watery grave that in some senses at least meant being away from God, being away from his blessings. So of course, Jonah's drowning in the middle of the sea, but on another level, he was being chewed up and swallowed, not by a fish, but by the watery forces of death, terrified that he was heading to a place separated from God. There's a bit more evidence for that in verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. If someone tells you to get out of their sight, you know what it means, don't you? It doesn't just mean that they don't want you in their eyeline anymore, that you're invading their peripheral vision. It means that there's a problem. There's a problem with your relationship with them. They don't want to know you anymore. And as Jonah was drowning, he saw that his main problem wasn't just that his, his lungs were running out of oxygen, but that his relationship with God wouldn't last much longer, that he was destined for a, an eternity without God. In verse 6, he sees himself at his lowest ebb, fearing that the sand at the bottom of the sea would act like a prison cell, the bars closing over his body and keeping him away from God forever. Jonah hits rock bottom, and then God lifts him up. Verse 6, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. Jonah's rebellion took him down and down and down. God's salvation brings him up. And, and not just up, but in. Did you notice the, the references to the, the temple in this psalm, verse 4? Uh, Jonah saw himself as being driven away from God's sight, but his hope was, I shall look Upon, I shall again look upon your holy temple. In verse 7, he imagines his prayers arriving before God in the temple. Now, the temple was the place of God's presence, where the God who created the heaven and the earth dwelled among his people. And as Jonah sits in the, the dark and stinky stomach of a fish, he's filled with confidence and hope that one day soon, He'll be back in the one place on earth where God is particularly present with his people. It's a, it's a far cry, isn't it, from the prophet who just one chapter ago was doing all he could to get as far away from God as it was possible to go. Or the drowning man who was driven away from God's presence. Now Jonah can't wait to be with God, to celebrate his salvation with sacrifices and vows in the temple. And the rest of Jonah's song leaves the, the dread of a watery death behind and focuses fully on praising God for his wonderful salvation because this is the only God who can save. Verses 8 and 9, Jonah brings his song to a close by comparing and contrasting himself to those who have rejected God and chosen to follow idols, the pretend gods of the nations, rather than the true God 
of Israel. Uh, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thanksgiving for God's salvation is the theme of Jonah's stomach-set sing-along. And for those who experience salvation from God's hand, thanksgiving has to be how we respond to. And we know that the right response to receiving a gift is gratitude. If you're not convinced, then the next time you have a birthday, um, don't say thank you to anyone you get a present from and see how many presents you get at your next birthday. God's salvation to us is always a gift. We can never earn it. We don't own it. It belongs entirely to him. He gives it for free to those who ask for it. So are you grateful for God's salvation? It's so easy to become just familiar with salvation, isn't it? To become casual or even hardened to what God has done for us. It's just what we hear and think about. So often it can start to fall on deaf ears. If that happens to us, we we shouldn't let it. If we've experienced God's mercy towards us in Christ, we have so much to thank him for. Like Jonah, the trajectory of our rebellion against God takes us down and down. And left to our own devices, we'd keep going that way until we hit rock bottom in hell forever. But God didn't leave us to deal with the consequences of that downward spiral. He stepped in. He sent his son Jesus to be our savior. And Jesus took that downwards trajectory on himself. Did you notice that in Philippians 2, which Laurie read to us earlier? The Lord Jesus came from heaven down to earth, down to death, even death, on a cross, down to the grave. The Lord Jesus died as the lowest of the low. And in response, God raised him up, up to new life, but his upward curve didn't stop there. God raised him up even further, exalting the Lord Jesus to the highest place of all, to the name above all names, and now he sits on the throne of heaven, And he holds out his hand and promises that he'll bring up whoever takes it. That he'll bring those who grab hold of his hand up to be with him in heaven. If you've put your trust in him, if you've experienced salvation through the Lord Jesus, you can know that no matter how far you've sunk in your sin, he will raise you up to be with him. Not sent out of his sight for eternity, but brought into his home, brought into a relationship with him, a relationship that that starts now and lasts forever. Isn't that something to be grateful for? Christian salvation is a lot like Jonah's in chapter two. God has saved us from the, the danger of our sin, but not necessarily from its consequences, not necessarily from the circumstances of living in a sin sick world, And even for the believer, life cannot sometimes feel as foul as being in a fish's belly. And yet, no matter what the circumstances of our lives, 
the reality of God's salvation can fill our mouths with praise. Give us a song of thanksgiving to God that's worth singing. Is that the song your heart's singing? From the stinky stomach of a a great fish, Jonah gives thanks to the God of salvation, the God who has rescued him. And he vows to worship God with sacrifices in his temple. And in response to this, this magnificent song of thanksgiving, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited, out, vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Yuck. Did you see that coming? Being sick is horrible, isn't it? Being sick yourself is bad enough. I think it's a lot worse, actually, to deal with the aftermath of someone else's sick. But imagine being a fish's sick. That is nasty, isn't it? Imagine, oh, this is just a totally disgusting image. Imagine Jonah being thrown up, projectile vomited out of the mouth of this, uh, this great big fish, flying through the air and coming down to land on dry land with a bump, covered in bile and bait and all sorts of other stinking and sticky things that I imagine make up the vomit of a fish. Uh, it is grim stuff, isn't it? And it makes us ask, why? Why didn't God just speak to the fish and you know, ask it to open its big fishy lips and say, ah, and let Jonah kind of emerge with some dignity intact. This might be another part of this passage with a double meaning. Now, the Bible doesn't talk about vomit all that much, uh, but when it does use the word vomit, it sometimes um, has a particular meaning. Um, It's imagery for God's judgment. When this word is used in the Old Testament uh, in Leviticus, God talks about the the Canaanites, the people who used to live in the promised land, being uh, sent out of the promised land, being ejected for their wickedness. And he says the land vomited them out. And he warns his people that if they follow uh, Canaan's wicked ways, if they disobey him, the land will vomit them out as well. Uh, Vomit is the way creation responds to rebellion. Now, whether or not Vomit has that double meaning here. The fact that Jonah ends this chapter in such uh, kind of disgusting circumstances, I think gives us an invitation to look at this prayer a little bit differently. Could this fishy chunder be a signal to us that Jonah's response to God is, is somehow lacking a little something? Jonah does show deep gratitude, but does he show real repentance. With this in mind, we might look back over uh, this passage and see some red flags start to spring up. And we know that Jonah has been rebelling against God since the very start of this book. But did you notice that according to Jonah, his problems only really started when he hit the water? His prayer is full of gratitude, but there's no confession of sin here. He doesn't make any reference to his rebellion, his running away from God, his refusal to carry out the mission that God gave him. In fact, he makes his desperate situation sound a little bit more like it was God's fault rather than his. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Jonah, what were you doing in the seas in the first place? Verse, uh, verse 4, then I said, I am driven away 
I am driven away from your sight. Jonah, weren't you the one who was desperate to get as far away from God as you possibly could? Have you ever met someone who just flat out refuses to take responsibility for their actions? Everything that happens to them is someone else's fault. They never apologize. They can't. They shift the blame onto someone else. They always pass the buck. Does it feel a little bit like that's what Jonah is trying to do here? Thanks for saving me, God, but it wasn't really my fault that I ended up in the drink in the first place. Uh, We might say that Jonah's words are true, but are they the whole truth? Are they nothing but the truth? Or is Jonah subtly trying to uh, show himself in the best light possible, portraying God as the one who was really responsible for this sticky situation? As we look back on this psalm, we don't see Jonah's sorrow over his sin. And we're not given any evidence of real change deep down in Jonah's heart. It's interesting that that Jonah's great desire is to be in the temple, back among his own people, in the comfort of the promised land. He doesn't at all express a desire to go to Nineveh like God told him. And as this book goes on over the next few weeks, we'll see more and more evidence that Jonah's response to God's salvation is, is lacking real repentance. You see, real repentance involves a determination to change, to turn from the, the sinful actions and attitudes which, which grieve God and to follow his ways and share his heart. So what do you think about Jonah? Is his response to God's salvation all it needs to be? Or is he uh, half-hearted? Uh, is this song full of half-truths? The book of Jonah is more interested in asking us questions than giving us answers. And I think that's what it's doing here. It's asking us questions. It presents us with a picture of someone who has responded to God's salvation. And it wants us to weigh up whether he's getting it right. Whatever conclusion we come to about Jonah, God's word doesn't want us to stop there. God's word wants to ask us, how are we responding to God's salvation. Yes, are you deeply grateful like Jonah was, but also are you really repenting? Christians can sometimes have a Jonah's eye view of our salvation. It's easy to slip into. We're very grateful for it, and we're happy to tell other people how meaningful it is to us. Our lives were in a mess before we came to know Jesus, and he came along and sorted, it us, sorted us out, filling our lives with meaning and our hearts with hope. Now, there's nothing wrong with that as far as it goes. But the truth is, God's salvation is much bigger than that because our biggest problem goes much, much deeper than that. Our biggest problem is our sin, our deliberate rebellion against God, our rejection of his loving rule over us and our desire to make him our servant while we sit on his throne. And it's our sin which means we deserve to be shut out from God's loving presence forever. It's our sin which means we deserve death rather than life. And crucially, it's our sin which meant that the only way God could step in and save us was by sending his son to die on the cross. Now, our culture doesn't make it easy for us to accept that we're sinners who deserve punishment from God. 
the prevailing message of our time is accept yourself. Love yourself just the way you are. And the idea that in our rebellion, we're not worthy of God's acceptance or love, well, it's hard for us to take, isn't it? And there are a thousand different excuses we can make for our sin. Well, I wouldn't get so angry if she didn't push my buttons. I wouldn't cheat my employer if they were paying me a fair wage. And we can even blame God. It's just the way he made me. But when it comes to sin, the Christian won't play those games. The Christian will trust that God's verdict on their sin is the right verdict on sin. That it is ugly and deadly and theirs. And they'll want to say sorry and be sorry to the God they've offended through their own selfishness, acknowledging that they they don't deserve anything from him. Is that how you feel about your sin? Are you sorry for it? Uh, Being sorry is just the start. It isn't the end of repentance. If we're really repentant, we'll do all we can to change. If it's a bad habit, we'll want to put a stop to it. If it's an ungodly attitude, we'll repent of it whenever it rears its ugly head in our heart. If it's something we're inclined to believe that contradicts God's word, we'll correct our thinking at every opportunity. We won't treat God like some divine lifeguard. Thanks for rescuing me, but don't you have other people to go and save? We'll submit to Jesus not only as our savior, but also as our Lord. We'll do all we can to live life his way, even when it means acting against our our strongest desires and the expectations of our culture. We'll invite the God of salvation, who has shown us such grace and mercy and love, to be at work in us through the power of his spirit to make us more like his son. Jonah's response to God's salvation, it is a great case study for us. It's a complex picture of what I think is a mixed response. But if it was your heart, your life, under examination this morning, what would we see? How are you responding to God's salvation? Are you deeply grateful? Or are you turning your nose up at it? Are you really repenting? Being sorry for your sin and desperate to follow God and his ways. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and through the Lord Jesus, he offers it freely to all who will put their trust in him. Why not use the next few moments of quiet to think about how you're responding in the the deep places of your heart and call out to the Lord for help? Just a few moments of quiet, and then we'll sing.